A reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter, verse, chapter 25, verses 1, 6 to 9. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. A reading from Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, 9 to 10. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Our reading is from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some of it and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak to us, reveal yourself to us. So I pray in light of that truth that as I, as preacher, just get out of the way, there'd be far, far less of me, far, far more of you, that your people gathered virtually would be edified and your son, Jesus, glorified. For we ask this in his name. Amen. The church year is ordered in such a way as to form us as followers of Jesus, to root us in the gospel story, to have that story by the power of the Spirit form and shape our being, our doing, and our relating. It should not surprise us, but that formation begins with Jesus. The season of Epiphany given over to discovering his identity, uncovering his significance. Now this year we're going to be deliberately working our way through the Gospel of John. And in today's text, John says this, this story, this moment was the first sign. Meaning this story above any other story reveals Jesus. Which is Stunning, right? Because it's not sermon for the uninitiated. It's not food for the hungry, health for the ill, risen life for the dead. It's wine to keep a party going. But John has the audacity to say that this story, this moment, above every other moment, reveals Jesus, his identity, his significance, his raison d'etre, his glory. I don't think this is the story we immediately think of when we consider who Jesus is. Am I right? In fact, in many ways, this story challenges our vision of Jesus. I saw this in the commentaries this week. As the details they focus in on and try and explain away are how Jesus speaks to his mother and what state of inebriation the guests were in when Jesus turned water into wine. Because we couldn't have a Jesus who was rude to his mom, could we? We couldn't have a Jesus who contributed to drunkenness, could we? But those are mere distractions. To focus there would be to try and get the text to answer questions it was never intended to answer. The central question this text seeks to answer is, what is our vision of Jesus? And in light of that, how do we relate to him? And so let's take those central questions to our text. What is our vision of Jesus? And how in light of that do we relate to him? Now chances are those questions don't enter a vacuum. We already have our preconceived notions of who Jesus is and how to relate to him. Perhaps to receive a savior, to follow a teacher, to dismiss a mythology. We have some notion of who Jesus is and how to relate to him. But to receive a new vision, a new way of relating, we've got to make a clean break with the old. Now, I believe this letting go, this clean break is the very purpose of Jesus' jarring interaction with his mother. Make a clean break from seeing me, relating to me in that way, and instead see me, relate to me in this way. Jesus, his mother, his disciples are at a wedding, more than likely a family wedding, 
for Mary held a place of prominence. Early introductions to the gospel say that this was John's wedding, his mother Salome, Mary's sister. Now, weddings were the highlight of village life, a joyous festive break from the grueling work of subsistence living. Weddings didn't just last a day into the night, they lasted an entire week as the new couple would host an open house and share food readily, wine flowing freely. The groom's family was responsible for keeping the party going. And in an honor and shame culture, it was devastating if you couldn't extend such hospitality. To run out of wine was to incur shame, a potential lawsuit from the bride's family. And as Mary and Jesus are part of that family, they too would bear the shame. And so Mary turns to Jesus, got to do something about this, son. His response, curt, abrupt, dismissive. And there's no insight into the original language here to soften it. Woman, what does this have to do with me? This was no way to speak to your mother. Joseph, Mary's husband, is no longer in the picture. The assumption is that he's died sometime after Jesus turns 12. Mary, now a single mother. Jesus picks up the family trade, carpentry, to provide for them both. He's now 30, unwed, a cultural anomaly. We have no reason to believe that their relationship was anything but caring, Loving, close. So why the sudden rebuke? Well, John in his gospel never refers to Mary by name. She's always spoken of as a relationship, the mother of Jesus. But Jesus never refers to her as mother. I think what John is telling us is that Mary's primary way of relating to Jesus was as mother to son. It's understandable. And Jesus' abrupt response to her is inviting her to relate to him in an entirely new way, as a disciple. You see, to see and relate to Jesus in a new way, we've got to make a clean break with any inadequate ways of seeing, of relating. I subscribe to Relevant Magazine, which covers the intersection of life, faith, culture, social justice. And every couple of days now, they've been sending out current articles. And one of them this week was in challenging readers to make a clean break with old ways of seeing, relating. The author, Dana Drozdick, was reflecting on the Christianity many of us were formed in in the church being told, everything happens for a reason. God has a plan even in this. You just have to have enough faith and be good, and God will give you a way through to your best. Warm, fuzzy placations that kept us feeling safe, secure, in control. Now, usually that vision of God gets dashed upon the rocks of reality when real suffering hits. But what happens when we all face it at the same time, like in 2020? 
health crisis, job loss, bleak economic future, facing the horrors of racial injustice, deep political polarization. As a pastoral team, we've been reaching out to the community by phone and email. And as you've reflected on your spiritual lives, some of you have said this has been a a time of deepening trust in God, while others have said, I think I'm losing my faith. But I wonder if in many cases it's not losing faith as much as the reality that we see all around us is exposing bad theology. That we don't have a vision of God that can make sense of what's going on around us. And so, yes, we're losing our faith. But that's a good thing. Because we're losing our faith in an inadequate, unbiblical vision of God. But that will do us no lasting good unless we have a true vision, a true way of relating to take its place. I want you to consider it for a moment. Have there been times in your life where an inadequate vision of God has been exposed? Very often it's incredibly difficult to let go of that. And some of us are still holding on to that for dear life because it brought safety, comfort, a sense of control. But the jarring rebuke of Mary was meant for our good. The jarring rebuke of our false visions of God are meant for our good. Because we have to first let go. Make a clean break from those inadequate visions before we'll ever behold the glory of who Jesus is. A glory that John longs to show us in this first sign. John is very specific in his details. The wine has run out. And Jesus asks the servants to fill up six stone jars. We're told that were set aside for the Jewish rites of purification. Now every home had these jars. And water would be taken regularly from them to wash your feet when you came in. To wash your hands before you ate a meal. To wash your utensils between courses. We would see this simply as good hygiene, the precursor to indoor plumbing. But for them, it also had an added symbolic meaning. But the world was not as it should be. It, we, have become marred by sin and need to be washed, cleansed. And so with each washing, with each cleansing, they're reminding themselves of this core truth. I, we, our world is not as God intended. Sin must be dealt with. Sin must be washed away. These jars show up again in the Gospel of John at the Last Supper. Jesus would have drawn from this, these jars to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter protests. You shouldn't be doing this for me. I should be doing this for you. But Peter, if I don't do this for you, you can have no part of me. Well, then wash me from head to toe. And indeed he does. And Jesus here fills these jars right up to the brim meaning the reality that these jars point to has been fulfilled. Sin has been washed away. Jesus has borne our shame, lifted our condemnation. But then the jars seem to be forgotten. 
as he sends the servants back to the well to get more water. And this water he asks them to bring to the Lord of the feast. And the Lord of the feast was kind of like your MC. You know, the person at the wedding who keeps the party going. The one who stands up and says, now it's time for the first dance. Now we'll hear from the parents of the bride. Now the time for the game to see who gets dessert first. The MC, the Lord of the feast job was to keep the party going. The wine's run out. He hasn't done his job. So who in the story is the true Lord of the feast? Who is the one who keeps the party going? Jesus. Jesus is the true Lord of the feast. I chose our first readings deliberately to point to a trajectory that is right through Scripture. That God is bringing about a future of no more pain, no more sin, no more injustice, where death does not cast a shadow, where God himself will wipe every tear from our eye. And it's likened to a feast, a wedding feast. Rich, delicious food, succulent, well-aged wine, the utter renewal of all of physical creation. This is the future God in Jesus is bringing. He is the true Lord of the feast. Now that stands in stark contrast to how Christianity has often presented our future. Marred by platonic dualism, we spoke of a future where our souls would be freed from the prison of our bodies, entering either an ethereal spiritual reality and in disembodied heaven or to the horrors of hell, all dependent upon whether or not we accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. No. No, Jesus here points toward a material future, of taste, of touch, of smell. A future where all of material reality is shot through with God's beauty and purpose. Where a feast, one of the joyous highlights of life, is the only thing that can adequately point to it. Jesus is the true Lord of the feast. And John, the Lord of the feast, then takes... The water turned to wine and immediately goes to the bridegroom. Oh, you are like any other bridegroom I've ever served. Every other bridegroom serves the best wine first, and then when everyone's drunk and their senses dulled, bring out the cheap stuff. But you are like any other bridegroom I've ever served. You've saved the best for last. He's getting the credit. But who is the true bridegroom. Jesus is the true bridegroom. A little further into the gospel, and we come to a conversation between a group of people and John the Baptist. And they're saying to John the Baptist, all these people who used to be crowding around you are going after Jesus. I I think they thought he might be upset by this or needed to do something different to win them back. No, he said, that's, that's how it should be. He's the bridegroom. I was only the friend of the groom. In that culture, the best man. The one who was sent ahead to blow a trumpet to say, the bridegroom is coming, it's time for the festivities to begin. 
Jesus is the true bridegroom. Now, grievously, this imagery has been used for far too long in the church to idolize marriage, to hold it up as the be-all and end-all, leaving those who are single feeling ostracized less than, leaving the couples who are going to be facing the inevitable difficulties of marriage feeling like they need to hide it from others. And they often keep it silent that they're facing trouble until it's too late. The imagery here of Jesus as the bridegroom is not so much meant to be reflected back to us as much as to point to a reality beyond it. That theme that's carried through Scripture of this material future that is likened to a wedding feast is spoken of in Zephaniah with incredibly beautiful and poetic language where it says that God himself will quiet us with his love, rejoice over us in gladness, sing over us in delight. God in Jesus is the true bridegroom who delights in, rejoices over, envelops us in his love. That is the vision, the glory of Jesus. John invites us to behold, to take our eyes off inadequate visions, to make a clean break, to behold the true cleanser of sin, the true Lord of the feast, the true bridegroom. So in light of that vision of Jesus, how then do we rightly relate to him? Our closing verse points the way. This, the first of his signs, manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Or in the original Greek, believed into him. How do we rightly relate? We believe into Jesus. Rather famous illustration that I often return to, that I think perfectly illustrates the difference between believing in and believing into. And it comes from the life of Charles Blondin, who's a famous French tightrope walker. He was the first person to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope some a quarter of a mile long in 1860. People from all over this region would go to see his show. And so he added different elements to keep it exciting and, and daring. He crossed at night. He crossed blindfolded. He crossed on stilts on a bicycle. He carried a small stove across with him and cooked an omelet in the middle before carrying on. One time he crossed that tightrope over Niagara Falls pushing a wheelbarrow full of hundreds of pounds of potatoes. And when he got to the other side, everyone cheered and and showed their appreciation and he quieted the crowd and and he asked them, which of you believe that I could push a person across Niagara Falls in this wheelbarrow. Oh, yes, they said, we believe, we believe you could do that. Okay, he said, who'd like to get in? Crickets, right? No one volunteered. They believed he was capable. They'd seen him do it. But the belief did not lead them to action. 
It did not lead to an act of the will based on what they'd seen. They believed, but they didn't believe into. Jesus' disciples believed into him. Now, what does that look like? Well, when Mary, Jesus' mother, is bluntly redirected to a new way of relating to him as disciple, what's her response? How dare you talk to me like that? I'm your mother. No. She turns to the servants. Do whatever he tells you to do. She believed into. She expressed obedience. Do whatever he tells you to do. And they do. Then it was absolutely ridiculous. How many trips would they have had to make to the town well to fill up 180 gallons worth of water? I thought the problem was wine. Why is he sending us to the well? Why not to the LCBO? It makes no sense. And then once they fill up those jars, he seems to ignore it and then send them back again for more water. And it's that water they bring to the Lord of the feast, that water that's turned to wine. What was the point of schlepping all that water? Do whatever he tells you to do. We want obedience to fit our wisdom, our desires, our best interests. God, if you want me to obey, then you better show me how this makes sense, how it fits with my best. Do whatever he tells you to do. Why? Because that's the way he brings about this glorious new reality. Through our obedience. Believe into. Do whatever he tells you to do. Now this posture of believing into is not only obedience, it's also embodied in what we orient our lives toward. What is Jesus oriented toward in the midst of this joyous feast? It's one of the most striking details of the story. The reason he gives for denying his mother's request. What does this have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. My hour's not yet come. It's not my time to do a miracle? No. It's not my time to reveal who I really am? No. And John, his hour always referred to the hour of his death. It's not my time to bring about the full cleansing of sin these jars of purification point to. It's not my time to bring about the glorious renewal of all of creation that this wedding feast points to. It's not my time to envelop my people in an embrace of love. For that will be through my hour, through my death. Jesus is sitting in the midst of this joyous feast, oriented toward the cross, toward his death. Ed Clowney, in reflection on this text, says that Jesus at this feast sat amidst the joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so that you and I can sit amidst this world's sorrow Sipping the cumping joy, 
the joy of the renewal of all creation. Believe into, orient yourself to that coming joy. And not only will that buoy you up as you navigate this world's sorrow, it will also radically shift how you respond to that sorrow. N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, reflects on the Christian belief in resurrection. Not just an affirmation that there's life beyond death, but an affirmation that God in Jesus is about the utter renewal of all of creation. And this belief, he said, animated followers of Jesus to a robust opposition to the injustices of our world. In the 18th and 19th centuries, Christians led movements toward the abolition of slavery, prison reform, health reform, education reform. But he also made the grievous observation that the English evangelicals, like William Wilberforce, gave up believing in the urgent imperative to improve society about the same time that they gave up believing robustly in resurrection as the utter renewal of all creation and settled for a disembodied heaven instead. A heretical legacy we continue to perpetuate, continue to live in light of. Believe into. Orient yourself to that coming joy, the utter renewal of all of creation, and may it animate in us a fierce opposition to the injustices of our world. And so may we let go of inadequate visions of Jesus. May we make a, make a clean break and behold his glory, the true cleanser of sin, the true Lord of the feast, the true bridegroom who longs to embrace us in love and rejoice over us in song. And may we, in light of who he is, believe into him. Do whatever he tells us to do. For it is through our obedience that he brings that new reality. May we believe into, orient ourselves to that coming joy that it would buoy us up in the midst of the world's sorrow, that it may animate in us a robust, determined response to the injustices of our world. For we yearn for this. We pray for this. In Jesus' name, amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.